This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Well, with, um, you know, the Delta variant becoming uh, dominant uh, worldwide, we're seeing in various countries conversations around so-called vaccine passports. Israel has gone back to its green pass system. France is rolling out something similar in terms of people accessing restaurants, theaters, etc., uh, some Canadian provinces, Manitoba in particular, has uh, used this approach as well. The idea that proof of vaccination might be required to go certain places or do certain things. Even here in Alberta, the Calgary Stampede, you needed to show proof of vaccination or have a negative test to uh, take in the music stage, the Nashville North stage at the Calgary Stampede. Now, we spoke the other day with the City Howe Institute and uh, their argument that in some circumstances, um, so-called vaccine passports may be compatible with Canadian laws. Uh, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, though, believes that uh, vaccine passports are a necessary infringement, an unnecessary infringement on civil liberties. Joining us to talk more about uh, this side of this debate, Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, the CCF.ca, joins us. Uh, Joanna, thanks for making uh, time for us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you. So the term vaccine passport, and it's kind of a catch-all phrase to refer to various scenarios where proof of vaccine, uh, vaccination is required. But in terms of how you approach this and, and address the issue, how, how do you define it? Or what does it mean to you? Well, I think we should talk about specifics. There are at least three different things that we're talking about here. For, the first could be international vaccine passports. So you need to be vaccinated to enter certain countries, as will be the case shortly with Canada for American travelers, uh, which we have much fewer concerns about. Then you have domestic vaccine passports. And currently we have two versions of this in Canada. We have a vaccine passport, which is required to cross provincial borders. So Manitoba has this, PEI has this. And then probably the most worrisome from our perspective is vaccine passports to just access public spaces. So, for example, in Manitoba, it's the first and hopefully the last province to do this, although Quebec has hinted they may do this in the event of a fourth wave. You need to show a vaccine passport to go into the cinema or a museum or to dine at a restaurant with people who are not in your household. And we think this is where vaccine passports go much too far. By the way, would you draw a distinction between, you know, the scenario you described where the government is telling uh, those businesses or those those kinds of services that they have to require this versus an individual theater, an individual restaurant saying for us here at this restaurant or, or this museum or whatever it is, we require it. Is there a difference between the government mandating this across the board and individual businesses doing this on their own? Absolutely. And I think it's completely clear that businesses are completely uh, 
completely free to do this. I saw one restaurant that I frequent has a new ad that says no jab, no tab. And whatever you think about that, it's a private business and the charter does not apply to them. And you can always go to a different restaurant, but the government, if you're a Canadian citizen, we don't get to choose that. We are bound by the government and they have to engage with us according to certain fundamental principles. And from our perspective at the CCF, these government-imposed vaccine passports, particularly, I want to add, um, you mentioned C.D. Howe said they may be justified. I think we might agree that if there were proper exemptions built in, so for example, medical exemptions, people who can't be vaccinated for health reasons, or indeed religious or conscientious objections, then there would be a case for it. But there are none of those exemptions. And so this is a violation of Section 6, right to mobility, Section 7, right to liberty and security, and maybe even Section 8, right to privacy, because most of these passports are being rendered electronically. Part of the argument, and maybe I'm assuming what part of the argument might be, but I, I do wonder if it becomes a choice at some point between, okay, we'll allow restaurants to be open, but only for vaccinated individuals versus closing the restaurants altogether. Is is one preferable to the other from, from your perspective, or is that alternate scenario relevant in, in assessing the appropriateness of this? I think that you have to look at the overall rate of vaccination in Canada. Right now, about 78% of our population has at least one jab. Uh, it looks like we're on track by the end of the month for 70% of Canadians to be fully vaccinated. So we're looking at a pretty low risk scenario. I would say that the risk um, to a vaccinated person of even coming into close contact with somebody who's infected, even with Delta, it's really more the, along the lines of the risk of, of coming in contact with a flu or or cold virus. And certainly nobody would talk about flu vaccine passports in the before times. But we really have to look at the actual risks and whether they justify the quite significant infringement on our liberties, right? Having to disclose private health information and even just having checkpoints and having to, it's its like a type of, of customs. And I think our presumption should be in favor of free and open movement unless there's a compelling public health objective. And I think given how well as a country we've done with vaccination, and I want to emphasize that the CCF is pro-vaccination, pro-voluntary vaccination, um, we don't have to impose these, these draconian measures which will disproportionately affect people who have serious compelling reasons why they can't be vaccinated. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we just had the Calgary Stampede here and uh, the, the indoor music uh, venue, the uh, so-called Nashville North. And it was controversial, but they said anyone attending has to show proof of vaccination or be willing to take um, a rapid test. So when we talk about exemptions, possible exemptions, if indeed governments are going to go down that path, would that be sufficient to give people that, that option that if you don't want to disclose this information, uh, that, that you take a COVID test? Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair and balanced measure. Again, we may hopefully reach a point, um, one hopes within six months or down the line where the, the rate of vaccination is so high and the rate of transmission is so low that we won't have to go to those options. But I think in these first few months of reopening, that is reasonable. And I want to just note that we just got a note from a young woman in Manitoba who suffered a severe reaction to her first shot of the vaccine. You know, rare, but it happens. Right. And her doctor advised her not to get a second shot given her severe reaction. Um, and now she can't, 
go to the museum. She can't leave the province of Manitoba. She said to us that she feels suicidal. Um, and that's the type of person that should have a legitimate medical exemption from domestic vaccine right. passports. Uh, but so as it stands in, in Manitoba, there wouldn't be that. No. Is that the no, case? No, there's that. Okay. There, there are, yeah. are no exemptions. Well, and I guess that's going to be the thing to watch. And as you say, maybe this all becomes a moot point as we continue to march forward on, on vaccines. But uh, something we're going to have to keep a close eye on, isn't it? Absolutely. And on the other hand, too, and I know we've, we've spoken before about some, some other uh, potential issues your group has had concerns about. And I guess as we've made progress on vaccines, as it creates some other potential issues, I guess we've kind of addressed some. For example, the hotel quarantine, uh, which your organization has been very concerned about, looks as though that's finally coming to an end, isn't it? Yes, they finally have decided to pull the plug as of August 9th, which is um, about six months too late, in our opinion. Right. There's no suggestion that those hotels did anything but cause a lot of hardship and misery and did nothing in stemming the, the spread. There were outbreaks at those hotels, but that's finally ending. And we really think this is going to be the next area to watch. We, I should say, um, are currently collecting stories and looking for potential plaintiffs. If you go to the ccf.ca uh, forward slash no dash vaccine dash, dash, dash passwords, or you can just go to ccf.ca, the ccf.ca, I should say. Um, and if you have a particular circumstance, for example, if you need to travel into PEI or Manitoba and you have um, a medical reason why you can't be vaccinated, we would like to hear from you. All right. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Joanne, appreciate it as always. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you. Much appreciate it. Uh, Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Again, their website, theccf.ca. So this is something they're going to be watching very closely, obviously already seeing some potential issues, as she mentioned, uh, in Manitoba. And maybe we'll see some court cases that arise from this. So far, that, that's pretty much the extent of it in terms of uh, so-called vaccine passports existing in Canada. So it's a situation where Manitoba is mandating it, concerned that maybe there aren't some sufficient exemptions here. The government here in Alberta has been pretty clear that this is not a path they want to go down, that they're not going to, they say, enforce vaccine passport mandates. But it's possible, as we already saw with Nashville North at the Calgary Stampede, uh, that individual events or businesses may require it themselves. You know, I mentioned this the other day, like it wouldn't surprise me at all once we get into fall and winter that perhaps Alberta's NHL teams, for example, might look at this as an option. Because of course, you know, given what they've gone through over the past season and a half, they want full buildings, right? There's an assumption here that this is going to be more or less a normal NHL season. No more Canadian division, no more empty arenas. But if things start to, to go sideways a little bit, I think this maybe becomes inevitable. So we hope then that things don't go sideways. The best way to prevent that is to get those vaccine numbers as high as we can. We've got the supply here. That's not an issue anymore. It's generating sufficient demand. I mean, the good news is nationwide, we got about 80% of eligible Canadians with a first dose. It's a pretty reasonable assumption that we'll get more or less to that number on second doses. But yeah, the concern is that as great as 80% might have seemed a few months ago. Is it going to be enough uh, with this particular variant? So the higher we can get that, uh, the more moot 
all of this other talk of vaccine passports becomes. Important ruling this week uh, from a judge in B.C., a court in B.C., regarding free speech. And, you know, it's been uh, trying times for free speech in recent years, and maybe you could say arguably even over the last year and a half. Because the federal government gets set to bring in new hate speech legislation, I think this court ruling lays down some important principles. Let me quote the judge here. Justice Maria Moritello, the B.C. Supreme Court, in a free and democratic society, the exchange and expression of diverse and often controversial or unpopular ideas may cause discomfort. It is, in a sense, the price we pay for our freedom. And I think that that principle often gets lost in a lot of these debates. So it's encouraging to see this coming from the B.C. Supreme Court. Now, it may not be the final word on the matter, but I think it, it is nonetheless an important and significant ruling. So joining us to talk a bit more about the case that led to this ruling is uh, the organization that's uh, been involved with this. Now, this was uh, Grace Chapel in the city of New Westminster, B.C., uh, joining us on the line is Marty Moore. He's a, a staff lawyer with the uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, jccf.ca. Marty, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Good to be with you. And uh, thank you for uh, highlighting this, uh, this very encouraging decision from the perspective of freedom of expression. Yeah, it is. And I, I think those were really stirring words from, from the judge there. But let's take a step back because this involved uh, this church, Grace Chapel, and uh, an event they wanted to hold and a particular guest they had invited to speak. So give us some of the relevant background on this. Yeah, you bet. This is a multi-ethnic church in the city of New Westminster. It doesn't own its own space, though it had booked a city event center. And uh, the city... Uh, went through with this contract after, you know, nine months of negotiations, planning, etc. Like, this looked well in advance. But then they got an false and unverified accusation that the church was holding a, quote, anti-LGBTQ event. And so the context of this, they get this complaint at 9 p.m. on June 20th, 2018. And by 1 p.m. the next day, the city irrevocably revoked the church's booking without even attempting talk to the church about what was the nature of their planned youth conference. All they knew is that an individual was involved in facilitating the conference. And so this was the context in which uh, the city then, then brought up essentially a dangerous argument. And I think you kind of alluded to that. And that is this argument that the government has a right to kind of grade the public speech. And if your speech gets a high grade, well, then the government will allow it. But if it gets low value grade, then the government can can essentially just uh, violate your freedom of expression with a, with impunity, and that was the argument the city raised in this case, and that is what Justice Morlato there at the BC Supreme Court was responding to, and she she went on to say, once governments begin to argue that expression of some ideas are less valuable than other ideas, this is her words, we find ourselves on dangerous ground. And I think that uh, that hopefully will insert into the current conversation some respect for the fundamental principles of a free and democratic society, which is what Canada sets itself out to be in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. So it's interesting. So the one of the speakers that was going to be involved in this conference is obviously where this this uh, whole issue stemmed from. And it obviously wasn't something that had been said at the conference because it hadn't even happened. But it was sort of based on this this individual's reputation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It was essentially here's an individual who's listed on an advertisement as a facilitator of a conference, not even a speaker. That there was other speakers oh, okay. listed and and you know pastoral 
involvement and a singing group, etc. Uh, but this individual is listed as a speaker. So rather than, you know, talk to this church, hey, or listed as a facilitator, you know, what is this individual going to be doing? They just Googled her name, found as many articles as they could saying, well, she said this once upon a time. And, and you know, the, the court just, just disregarded that kind of Google search uh, judgment. You know, if you're going to violate someone's rights, you have to, first of all, recognize that they have the freedom of expression. And then you have to be very careful in how you go in to investigate, uh, you know, false and defamatory accusations that uh, a religious community's event is just going to be a hate event based on, you know, someone's accusation and a Google search. That was not good enough. It's certainly not good enough for government actors. And we really hope that this case, uh, you know, will serve as a precedent and a reminder to government actors of their constitutional obligations to put away this knee-jerk reaction and prejudice against maybe some members of society uh, who are seeking to engage in in public expression. And so uh, we are encouraged by this case and, you know, hopeful that uh, that government actors will uh, will give more respect to uh, you know freedom of expression, especially based on on the court's recognition that uh, you know essentially grading speech based on low value, high value is, is a dangerous ground for government to be on. Yeah, and and that was how the city put it that even if this expression does not rise to the level of hate speech, the low value of expression supports the reasonableness of the cancellation. That, that's a very uh, almost ominous kind of way of, of putting this, that the low value of expression supports the reasonableness of the cancellation. Yeah. Your thoughts on that? You know, sadly, Rob, uh, this, this statement could be coming from any number of levels of government, including the current federal government. And, and we do see that kind of reasoning happening even in academic circles where we lose sight of the very fundamental importance of freedom of expression, where the government doesn't get to uh, give your speech a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You know, certainly there are criminal law uh, requirements in regard to speech, uh, but otherwise government officials should not be uh, doing that kind of analysis of citizens' right to freedom of expression. And so uh, whether it's the federal government or a city government, uh, we don't like to see them engaged in that behavior, and it's good to see the court uh, you know, stand against the city's actions, and uh, the city can expect to, to find some, some cost consequences from the, the negative uh, result that it took yeah. in enforcing this, you know, case all the way to court. It, it really shouldn't have, shouldn't have been there. Well, and here's the thing, and a lot of this is about how the city of New Westminster handled this, because my sense from, from what I read here, it, you know, it's not as though there was an obligation, no matter what, that they provide this venue. That that might have been another way of handling it, where maybe the city could have canceled the event, but if they had tried to work out some alternatives or or been a little more reasonable in how they dealt with the church, maybe this this never would have happened. So, to to what extent did the city still have some some say in all of this? Well, the, the city is is renting out a facility. It has the ability, obviously, to to require that uh, events comply with the criminal code, for example, hate speech, um, but it's not entitled to, to simply take a knee-jerk reaction and, uh, and, and then cancel an event without even informing itself. And so at a bare minimum, uh, what the city needed to do was to respect that this uh, religious community has the freedom of expression and be very careful in imposing restrictions on that right, and and to make sure that any restrictions imposed are are justified by evidence and not just false accusations and uh, and uh, 
you know, prejudices, which seem to be what ruled the day here. Again, the city never even contacted the the religious community at issue to see what the nature uh, of their event actually was going to be. The event itself uh, was based on a theme of let God be true. And I mean, this client, uh, I've met with them. (laughs) They're a very tolerant, kind group. They have a ministry to the homeless and all those kinds of things. And so they they just got it wrong. And uh, government actors need to be a lot more careful if they are going to restrict expression, they have to be careful in balancing that, and, and they have to go into it uh, knowing that in Canada, we still respect the freedom of expression. Yeah, it's good to see the courts recognize that. More is mentioned on this case at uh, jccf.ca. Marty, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rob. All right. Marty Moore is a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom, was involved in this case in B.C. And yeah, I mean, you know, to, to see these words from this judge, I, I mean, it's pretty inspiring, i got to admit. With regard to the city of New Westminster's argument, the judge said, once governments begin to argue that the expression of some ideas are less valuable than others, we find ourselves on dangerous ground, which is true. We can all hold that opinion. I'm certainly of the opinion that some ideas are a lot less valuable than others, that a lot of people think a lot of stupid things, and that's fine, and I'm free to hold that opinion. But it's not for governments to start acting that way. And the the position of the city here, the low value of expression supports the reasonableness of the cancellation. That's turning the justification around completely. The church had booked this event. Again, this was somebody who, look, in fairness, is a controversial figure. Carrie Simpson is her name. Maybe you've heard of her before. She was actually involved in a defamation case, I think, involved a radio host that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Anyway. Uh, as Marty points out, she was a facilitator, not even a speaker of the conference. But all the, you know that happened is they saw her name, they Googled her, and said, that's that. This ain't happening. No opportunity for the church to explain itself. Uh, no opportunity to come up with some alternative arrangements. So, yeah, I think a big part of this is how the city of New Westminster acted and how unreasonable they were in approaching this. So, yes, freedom of speech does still matter, and governments need to to remember that. Welcome back. Well, uh, things kind of went quiet on the airline bailout front after Air Canada got uh, its financial support from the federal government. All eyes turned to WestJet. I think a lot of people initially felt like, well, this is unfair. Air Canada got support, WestJet didn't. And of course, the answer was, well, WestJet was now in its own negotiations with the federal government. And and this kind of dragged on for a while and sort of went quiet on this front. And and we all kind of forgot about it for a bit. So it was a bit of a surprise yesterday to hear this news. Maybe a pleasant surprise. Uh, WestJet has decided that they are not interested in federal government support. They have turned down. Uh, the federal government's uh, offers of financial support. Now, they have been in talks, so it's not as though they were just opposed completely on principle, but they've been in talks with the federal government for some months now. Uh, In a news release, though, late yesterday, quote, given encouraging vaccination rates across the country, both parties have mutually agreed to shift focus from these negotiations and away from taxpayer-funded support to leading the safe restart of the travel and tourism sector. WestJet and the government of Canada remain open to resuming financial support decisions in the future. 
So what do we read into this? Well, joining us uh, for some uh, insights, some analysis, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Professor Carl Moore, Associate Professor of Strategy and Organization at the DeSartels Faculty of Management, McGill University. Dr. Moore, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Always my pleasure. So, I mean, to, to me, as more of a layman on this, this did seem a little bit surprising, but from, from your perspective, were, were you surprised by this? Not really. I mean, it's dragged on for a long time, and there's a couple of reasons why it's dragged on. When you think about WestJet, it's owned by Onyx, which is a privately held company out of Toronto that did not want to share financial information with the government or the public, and also did not want to have to give money back to Canadians. Uh, They gave them travel vouchers, didn't want to give them cash. And above all, they did not want to give an equity position to the government of Canada. Their view, and I I would agree with them, that governments are good at many things. They're not good at running airlines. We've seen that. And over, for example, in Germany, Lufthansa, the German government has a couple seats on the board. And, uh, you know, reasonably a, a big, not a huge, but a big percentage of ownership which means the German government can put their oar in the water when it comes to Lufthansa, which makes airline executives nervous because they, in their better moments, and Westside is very well managed indeed, know how to run an excellent airline. And to get the government involved and putting uh, you know, their long nose in Jerry Schwartz and Onyx business is not something that appealed. Given that things have turned around a considerable degree, I mean, there's some uncertainty about a fourth or fifth wave, Right, things are looking better. And so they decided that the money wasn't worth it. And a fair bit of the money would go to people instead of having travel vouchers, just get cash. Now, for a few people, Rob, you know, someone who's, you know, bought a tickets to go back to Italy to see family and then, you know, elderly person got ill, there might be a case you could make that that person needs the money. But for a considerable majority, they get... Not They say two years, but they're really unlimited, and Westhead is very clear about that, where they can travel again in the future and take advantage of that. So it's something where you're in deep cash flow trouble, as airlines were. You do not want to give back enormous amounts of money. You'd rather give travel vouchers, but then you'll get their business in that sense in the future. Right. So it made perfectly good sense what Westhead and Onyx wanted to do, um, and they particularly did not want the long nose of government in their business. And given times are better now, I think this is a reasonable risk they're doing. So it tells us then, I suppose, a lot about what the, the federal government was offering or what they, they expected from WestJet. Um, the point about there being less urgency, which which is, I think, demonstrably true, but just how dramatically have the fortunes improved here for the airlines, in your view? Well, it's a lot better. I mean, it was down like 90 percent at the at the peak or the lowest point. And they laid off thousands of people, and there was a question of, and we never thought it would last this long. When you think back to then, you know, it was a matter of six months. It went longer than we thought. But at this point, uh, Canadians who still have jobs, and again, uh, in Montreal, jobs are going wanting for um, people. Um, We have money for those who kept jobs. We weren't spending money. We did home renovations, but we weren't traveling. We weren't spending as much money as we weren't going out to eat like we normally would. So there's a pent-up demand among Canadians, and a fair number of Canadians have the money to travel. And so they're traveling this summer if they can get away. 
Uh, you know, people getting more and more vac- uh, double vaccines or getting permission to travel. The U.S. is opening or uh, Canada is opening the U.S. So this summer, the fall and then particularly winter time when it gets really cold across Canada, other than, you know, southern B.C., we all look forward to going to Hawaii or Arizona or Mexico, wherever. Big pent-up demand. Yeah. A lot of Canadian families, not all, have the money. So I think it's going to be relatively good times unless we get a fourth or fifth wave. In terms of the, the workforce, WestJet, uh, like other airlines, I mean, they did have to, to lay off a substantial number of people. How many of those jobs have, have started to come back? Well, for a number. I mean, they're bringing back a lot of flights. They're bringing back yeah. people. Now, some people retired because they were in age to retire, and they just, you know, enough of this nonsense. Other people, you know, at the other end of the scale, the young people had not a lot of work experience. Some said, well, I'll go do something else. And so some have left the industry, both older people and younger people. But if you're a pilot, like if you're a flight attendant, there's other things you can do. It's not a horrifically uh, high-paying job, so there's other options. If you're a pilot, you spend years training, and there's few jobs that you can do that will make the kind of money you can as a pilot. So they are more apt to stay around. But more and more of them coming back to work, and they're feeling more hopeful about the future. And it looks like... Some airlines are going to, in Europe and so on, will actually increase maybe next year. It's interesting. I mean, you know, we've, we've made a lot of progress. The situation in Canada right now is is quite enviable. I mean, um, but, but when we look around the world, we see that, look, this, this virus isn't done with us, not by a long shot. And there, there is some concern about, as you say, you know, future waves here. There, there is a lot of uncertainty. So what does this mean now for, for the airlines going forward? I mean, WestJet's left the door open, obviously, here to coming back to, to the table with the, the feds if circumstances warrant. How much uh, uncertainty is there? There is some because, you know, it's a healthcare issue, a medical issue. And we see in the U.S. where, you know, during the Stanley Cup run um, in Montreal, there's, you know, like 3,500 people. Everybody wore masks. We're yeah. down in Tampa Bay. It appeared the whole place was full and no one wore masks. So, but again, America is playing, paying a bit of a price for that freedom. California's, you know, going to masks again and that sort of thing. So we, it's a mixed story where you can get too carried away. As good Canadians, we tend to be a bit more conservative and careful which in this case, it pays off. So it's uncertain where it's going to go. And you, you look at the reports coming out of Tokyo and Olympics there that, um, you know, there, there's a fair bit of nervousness and a possibility it might be cancelled. I don't think it will, but yeah. it's a possibility. I sat down and had a scotch with Dick Pound last week, who's the, you know, a senior Olympian, and he was talking, he was in the New York Times this week talking about it. You know, I... I think it will go ahead, but there's a possibility. So there's some uncertainty, but there's a sense of optimism in the air that Mm -hmm. seems to be somewhat justified. Yeah, and I mean, the decision this week, Canada is going to allow uh, vaccinated American tourists uh, as of August 9th. And I think a lot of international tourism is going to be predicated on, on being vaccinated. Maybe that takes the decision out of the airline's hands to have to require it of passengers. But does that become a part of the conversation at some point, do you think? Well, I think it was United CEO said in the in annual in like in quarterly results that they'd be willing if the government insisted to uh, you know check on people having double vaccines. In the U.S., that's somewhat controversial. A bit in Canada, yeah. 
but it's something where I've had both vaccines. My wife have, so you know, we're excited. I'm teaching in Iceland in August, and so I, wow. I feel freer, and I'm happy to show people my, you know, double vaccine because I've had it. So if it's not a good idea, we'll know in 30 years or whenever. But you know, at this point, it's a done deal. So I'm going to take advantage of that traveling to Iceland, coming back to Canada. But at McGill, we're not going to insist on it, is the stance at this point. And I'm, as a professor, not allowed to ask students if they've had a vaccine or not. So we're kind of going back and forth on it in, the, in Canadian society. But on the other hand, if you, if you want to say to people, I've had both vaccines, well, you can say that, but you can't ask someone, it seems, where we're evolving towards now, an airline yeah. or a government, mm-hmm. if a government says, like Iceland wants to know if, because I'm not an Icelandic citizen, they want to know exactly. if I have both vaccines, they want proof of it. Well, it's their country, you know, I'm a guest there, they can ask for it if they want. So, but the airlines seem to be open to that thought. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Moore, appreciate the insight. Uh, as always, thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. Talk to you again. The best. You bet. Carl Moore, Associate Professor at the uh, Desautel Faculty of Management at McGill University, focused on the airline industry. So, yeah, an interesting announcement from WestJet. And I, I think, you know, Carl Moore kind of hit on some of the reasons here. Uh, as a private company, how much are you going to open your books up to the federal government? Do you really want the federal government to have any kind of a stake, any kind of an ownership stake in your company? Probably not. So in the end, if that's what it costs, is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to get that financial support if it comes with all of that? And I think for WestJet, looking right now, it's, or, or Onyx anyway, the owner, uh, looking at uh, where things stand right now, things are looking up. There's a lot less urgency to this uh, idea of a federal bailout. So maybe walk away from the table now, see if this recovery continues. And if things go sideways, you know, you've left the door open, you know, to work on something out with the federal government. So I think it's an interesting approach, maybe a smart approach that they've taken here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.